0: Welcome to the second Travis Smith tax podcast on the uncertain tax treatment rules contained in the current finance bill and which will come into force with effect from April 2022. I'm Hugh Brooks, a senior associate in our tax team.
1: And I'm Simon Skinner, a partner in the tax team.
0: In this podcast, we're going to be taking a look at exactly what an uncertain tax treatment is. This podcast was recorded in the week commencing 24th of January 2022. In our first podcast, we gave a high-level overview of the rules, so if you're new to the rules, then you might want to start there. As noted in the previous podcast, the rules are not yet on the statute books, but they are in the current finance bill. We've also had two versions of draft HMRC guidance on these rules, and HMRC released the latest version of this last week on 18th of January 2022. In this podcast, we'll use the term taxpayer loosely to refer to companies or partnerships, though the application of these rules in the context of partnerships does have some nuances. Before we kick off let's recap on the test for what an uncertain tax treatment is.
1: Thank you Hugh. Okay well there are at least initially two triggers for uncertain tax treatment um, and there will be an uncertain tax treatment if either of those triggers is met. These two triggers are broadly that a provision has been recognised in the accounts to reflect that uncertain tax treatment, or two, that the tax treatment is different to the known position of HMRC. An earlier version of the legislation included a third draft which would apply where there was a substantial possibility that a court or tribunal would find the tax treatment to be incorrect. There was a lot of concern over this third limb and it's good that HMRC and the government have listened and removed it from the latest latest finance bill, while HMRC and the government consider it further. Unfortunately, from the consultation process, it appears that HMRC think there is still a gap in the rules without the third limb, so we may well see this come back in some form. The taxpayer needs to apply each of these tests and then to work out the tax that's attributable to the uncertain tax treatment. If the tax is different as it can be under those two limbs of uncertainty, you take the highest figure. The taxpayer then determines whether the tax difference, having aggregated certain related amounts, exceeds the threshold, which is generally 5 million pounds. In most cases, this needs to be assessed at the time the relevant tax return is made or amended, and not the earlier point where the taxpayer does the transaction that the uncertainty relates to. However, if an amount becomes uncertain under the accounting trigger after the relevant tax return, Then you also need to apply the test at that later time, so taxpayers can't completely switch off their minds once a return has been submitted or amended.
0: Thanks, Simon. So in terms of the accounting provision test, how do you expect this to be applied? Well, the rules
1: don't change when or on what basis a taxpayer recognises a provision in their accounts. That will still be an accounting question to be considered by taxpayers as they do now when they're preparing their accounts. However, the rules have been slightly extended in the latest Finance Bill, so they apply if there is a provision for an uncertain tax position, regardless of the accounting standard that has been used. The previous version only applied where there was an uncertain tax position in accounts that were consistent with GAAP. The relevant accounts here are the accounts of the taxpayer. So the company or the partnership, although a previous version of the legislation suggested that a provision in the accounts of a member of the partnership may be sufficient. So broadly, the steps we would expect here are first, you identify whether there is a provision in the taxpayers accounts in respect to the transaction and that provision is to reflect the probability of a different tax t- treatment. Second, you determine what tax or taxes the provision relates to. And if you need to, you disaggregate any provisions for the different items it relates to. Thirdly, you consider whether the tax is a relevant tax, so VAT, corporation tax or certain forms of income tax. Fourthly, you identify the relevant returns to which the uncertain amount relates, and then finally you apply the threshold test separately to each uncertain amount, taken with its related amounts, as discussed on the first podcast in
0: this series. Okay, thanks Simon. We're going to focus on the second trigger for the rest of this podcast. This looks at whether the relevant tax treatment relies wholly or in part on an interpretation or application of the law that is not in accordance with the way in which it is known that HMRC would interpret or apply the law. So if we break this down, A taxpayer needs to first identify the tax treatment that they have applied and the interpretation and application of the law that they have relied upon. Second, they need to identify if there is a known HMRC position and if so, what that position is. And third, they need to assess if the tax treatment they have adopted is in accordance with HMRC's position. So how does a taxpayer know what HMRC's position is for these purposes?
1: Well, the legislation expands a little on when HMR's position will be taken to be known. The legislation provides that HMR's position on a matter is taken to be known if it is apparent from HMRC guidance statements or materials that are of general application and in the public domain. Or from dealings with HMRC by or in respect of the company or partnership in question. HMRC's draft guidance for the legislation sets out a list of things that HMRC consider count as materials that are of general application and in the public domain. The list includes HMRC's manuals, statements of practices, revenue and customs briefs, and explanatory and technical notes to the legislation. The previous draft of the guidance suggested that this list was not exhaustive, That sentence has been removed in the updated guidance released last week, which, if HMRC mean the list is now exhaustive, is good news and helpful for taxpayers. We will confirm this with HMRC as part of the consultation process. That being said, there is still a large volume of HMRC material on that list, and HMRC's interpretation of the law may not be clear from the material or whether and how it applies to a particular set of facts may not be clear. The updated guidance released last week was somewhat helpful in this regard, in that it acknowledged that where HMRC's position is unclear, there will be no known HMRC position. However, while this is an easy statement to make in principle, it is of course a question of interpretation and judgment, and applying it in practice would not always be straightforward. It's important to note that the actual knowledge of the taxpayer is not relevant. The updated guidance acknowledges there is a large volume of HMRC material and states that the regime is not intended to act as a series of tripwires. It also suggests that HMRC will consider whether the business took a reasonable approach to establishing HMRC's position and notes that HMRC has discretion in imposing penalties and that there is a reasonable excuse defence.
0: HMRC's materials are often incomplete or out of date, and they can sometimes be contradictory. How are taxpayers supposed to navigate this?
1: Uh, You're right, Hugh, this is going to be a very difficult area. HMRC have acknowledged this and have said that they will go through an exercise of refreshing and clarifying their manuals. In terms of conflicting materials, the draft guidance says that more recently published materials take precedence over older materials which is a logical approach to take the concept of outdated materials is a bit trickier and it leads to the question of what does outdated mean the guidance is not currently adequate on this what if hmrc have expressed a different view in another public source well yes that should leave the older source update outdated see the comments about contradictory materials that we've just been talking about. What if HMRC are known not to apply that guidance in that way in practice in a particular circumstance? It's not clear if this means that the HMRC guidance is outdated, but what is clear from the guidance is that a belief by the qualifying company or partnership that the guidance is outdated or wrong will not in itself mean that notification is not required and therefore that may be a circumstance where clarification is required. What if HMRC's view has been found to be incorrect by a tribunal or court on a point? This is one of the more controversial aspects that came out of the consultation process. The first draft of the UTT guidance suggested that it depends on whether or not the judgment is being appealed. However, the updated guidance released last week does not include this wording It instead suggests that HMRC's position remains unchanged until HMRC updates its published materials to reflect the position adopted by the tribunal or court. This seems to go too far as it suggests that even if a court has decided a point against HMRC's published view, and HMRC has no ability to appeal that decision, taxpayers would need to continue to notify under the UTT rules until HMRC has updated their public materials. Again it's worth reiterating that actual taxpayer knowledge is not relevant, it doesn't matter whether or not the taxpayer actually knows what HMRC's position is.
0: OK, thanks Simon. And what about the other tests for determining the known position of HMRC? i.e. where HMRC's position is apparent from dealings with HMRC, by or in respect of the particular company or partnership in question?
1: Well, this is a little more helpful, we think. In particular, the dealings need to relate to that taxpayer. So, for example, it's not enough that an advisor has seen HMRC take a position in respect of an unconnected taxpayer or that HMRC has done so on, for example, another investee company of the same private equity fund. The first question is what counts as dealings with HMRC? The draft guidance suggests this includes any dealings with HMRC and gives examples to include discussions with a CCM or an HMRC tax specialist, or a written view of the correct tax treatment from HMRC. But there is no need for the dealings to be in writing. It's important to note that HMRC's position could have been given to that taxpayer on a previous matter or transaction. It doesn't have to be the matter or transaction in question. This could produce some harsh results, for example, if the taxpayer was told something on a transaction a significant time ago. HMRC's position could also have been given to an advisor of the taxpayer. Note the in respect of wording provided that it related to advice to the same taxpayer and not to an unconnected taxpayer. There is also a question of how this applies to group companies, and the legislation and guidance is not yet clear on this. On a technical reading of the legislation, we believe this test is applied on a company-by-company basis. We would expect this to be extended so as to be considered on a group-wide basis. Otherwise, as noted above, information on HMRC's position that comes to a taxpayer based on dealings that another person, including another group company, has had with HMRC is not relevant to this test.
0: Thanks very much, Simon. It sounds like there are a number of difficult and uncertain areas to these rules.
1: Yes, there will often be difficult questions of fact and degree in applying these rules and we will have to hope that HMRC takes a common sense approach.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you for joining us today for this podcast. We hope that this and our earlier introductory podcast have been useful in giving you an insight into this new and potentially difficult set of rules.